Our sermon text from this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 36 through 42. Now this text directly follows the section of the Gospel known as the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, we read Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, and here in Luke 6, we hear of Jesus' sermon on the plain. And in these texts, Jesus describes the blessedness of those who possess or embrace certain qualities. In the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then in the Sermon in the Plain, we learn that blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. These are all very encouraging things, especially for those who find themselves struggling with these things more frequently or consistently than those around them, right? It sure is reassuring to know that Jesus has promised comfort for those who are in mourning, or satisfaction is on the table for those who are hungry. These are all positive, reassuring, affirming statements, which is a different tone than many of Jesus' other messages, especially when the Pharisees are present. See, often Jesus will address a specific weakness or error in behavior, often using parables as examples of how to live or how not to live, especially in relationship to one another. In fact, immediately following the Beatitudes, Jesus does just this, juxtaposing those who suffer who will find joy and satisfaction in heaven, with those who hold on to their earthly blessings, who will find their hardship in spades when their comfortable life on earth is over. If we go back to verse 27, Jesus implores his followers to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. He then expands upon this by pointing out that it is easy to love someone who loves you back. Even sinners do that. Even pagans do that. But as followers of Christ, we are asked to love those who don't or who can't love us back. In fact, we are called to take it a step further and love those who hate us back, who do evil to us. As I studied this passage this week in preparation, I began to gain a better grasp of the genius of Jesus' words. Because in this passage, Jesus answers the five W's. Do you remember the five W's from elementary school? The five words to start a question. Who, what, when, where, why. And then there's the awkward H that gets tacked on the end, how. Uh, but Jesus answers all these questions in just a few short verses. So five W's. Who are we to love? Everyone, even those who despise us. What are we to do? Well, we're to bless those who curse us. We're to pray for those who abuse us. And we're to turn the other cheek to those who strike us. When, always, even when it's extremely challenging to do so, it's tough to simply turn the other cheek, isn't it? It sure is for me. Where, 
everywhere. If you see someone begging outside your door, help them out. Someone accosts you at the grocery store, don't fight fire with fire, etc. And then why? And this is the one that stood out for me. And also what finally leads us to our text this morning, which again is Luke 6, 36 through 42. So would you please stand as you are able for the reading of God's holy word. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a... Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of the speck, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and thank you for providing us with scripture. While sometimes it can be difficult for us to understand parts of it, Lord, we thank you that this one is pretty straightforward, even if not always easy to follow. Speak through your word this morning that we may um, understand the teaching of your son, Jesus Christ, and take it to heart, and be better at loving our neighbors as well. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, so why should we be kind and forgiving and merciful to those around us? even when they haven't done anything to deserve it? Well, because the Father has done the same for us. As it says in verse 36, because our Father is merciful, therefore we should be also. And this is where everything really comes together and where the precedent for our text this morning is set. We do these things because God does this for us. We may not be sworn enemies of God, but due to our sin, we can't help ourselves. We haven't loved God as we were meant to. We have cursed God or grumbled against him. And if you personally don't think you have, just read the Old Testament. Israel did it plenty of times for you. Don't worry. All right? We've abused the blessings God has given us and have still asked for more and have been given more. The truth is, God has loved us even though we haven't loved him in return. Jesus is saying these things because God has already been doing this for us since the very beginning. Therefore, we are to do the same for others, to avoid being hypocrites. We are to be merciful to others because, and just like our Father is merciful to us. And that brings us to verse 37. Verse 37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Just as the Father has chosen not to judge us by our lives that will certainly never measure up, 
right? Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. We have condemned ourselves to death because of sin, but God has chosen to redeem us from that sin through his Son, Jesus Christ, and welcome us to his side. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Just as our Father in heaven has turned our sins, which were like scarlet, and made us white as snow through his grace. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that the Father hasn't already done for us. Instead, he's asking us to love others in the way that the Father loves us, to spread the Father's love to the world around us. It's also here that we find one of the most quoted commands in Scripture. Judge not. Don't judge. Christ himself commands it. People love to throw this verse around as sort of a, a, like a blanket statement to uh, use to avoid drawing the ire of those around them or to justify sinful behavior. As if Jesus didn't also give us criteria by which we should judge behavior, uh, especially when it comes to religious claims that we hear. Paul also makes it clear later in Scripture that we are to address unconfessed sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Right? No, to be clear, Jesus isn't telling us to ignore the sins of others completely. Instead, Jesus' meaning is clarified in a couple parables found in verses 39 through 42. Judgment. It's almost like a, like a dirty word, isn't it? For me, it conjures up ideas of a courtroom with a guilty verdict or simply being found unworthy according to public opinion. We Christians don't, don't really like the word judgment, I don't think. We, we know it's something we aren't supposed to do ourselves, and we know that if we were judged fairly by God, we would fall woefully short. No, we don't, we don't like judgment, or at least we say we don't, right? But without realizing it, or by somehow falsely justifying it, judgment is something we tend to, tend to fall into. It's an easy trap to fall into. From just being honest with you, if I'm, I'm really good at noticing someone's public sin and shaking my head at that person. How could they do that? How could they sin like that? But if that same person could see the thoughts in my head or the things that I do when nobody is watching, not only would they be shaking their head at me, they would be appalled. Looking at and judging other people's sin can in some twisted and perverted way make us feel better about ourselves. It's maybe not that we're rooting for others to fail, uh, per se, but when we, they do fail, it can help us look past our own inadequacy in our own lives. We like to judge others for their sin, and maybe we don't like to admit that, but there's a reason Jesus speaks of it here in our texts, and it's because it's part of our sinful condition. And so Jesus points to heaven, and he says, hey, before you look at the other guy with contempt, remember... The Father knows all of your sins, too. He knows that you don't measure up either. And if we look back in history, some of the greatest religious failures have come as a result of not heeding these short parables here in verses 39 through 42. In verse 39, Jesus says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Well, if there's pits around, of course they would both fall into one. Right? That's not an effective way of leading a blind person. You could have the best trained, 
best disposition, most well-intentioned, seeing-eye dog known to man. But if that, that dog would lead you straight into a pit if he was also blind. The point of this parable, as well as the next one, is that while we have access to Scripture, to prayer, and to the Holy Spirit as believers of Christ, it is only through God that we can understand any of this stuff. If left to our own devices, we will make a mockery out of the entirety of Scripture in order to advise and guide others to a life of Christ or to even get ourselves pointed in the right direction. We need the guide. And that guide isn't any of you, and it definitely isn't me either. It's Christ. Verse 40 makes it clear that we are not striving to reach above Christ, but to learn from him, and in doing so, be like him. And then we reach verses 41 through 42. Uh, maybe this comes as a surprise to a few of you, but I really enjoyed playing basketball growing up. Uh, and having a brother that was two years younger than me, we had the opportunity to play on the same team a few times. And despite arguing all the time at home, we were actually pretty successful as teammates. Uh, he hit his growth spurt a lot later in life than I did. And so my job was to, on defense, rebound the ball, which I love. It's my favorite part of playing basketball is rebounding because I was almost always taller than anybody else on the court. And his job was to, as soon as a shot went up in the air when we were on defense, turn and run the other way so that when I rebounded the ball, I could throw a baseball pass down the court and he could catch it and make layups. And that was our offense. It was a pretty good gig, really. But one year, we were going into the final game of the season, and we found ourselves undefeated with a real shot at Northwest Christian Sports League immortality. This was at stake as we warmed up for our final game. And as luck would have it, we were playing the second-best team in our division that year. We'd beat them once before, but it was a hard-fought game. It was the toughest game we'd played all year. And we knew we'd have our work cut out for us, and the game lived up to its billing. With less than a minute left, we were up three points. And we turned the ball over on offense. And they came down, and it was a two-on-two. -two. One of my teammates was guarding the guy with the ball. And they had their wing outside. And they threw it to this kid named Jordan on the wing at the three-point line. And I was faced with a decision standing at about the top of the key. I could run out and contest the shot, or I could drop back a couple of steps and rebound the ball like I always did. And I chose to rebound instead of jumping out to defend because I figured if we get the ball here, when I get the ball, I'm going to rebound this ball, right? We can just kind of run out the clock and win the game. But then the unimaginable happened. The kid hit the shot. He hits the three to tie the game with 20 seconds left. It just didn't even occur to me that that was going to happen. And so as we get the ball, we dribble down. My brother gets the ball on the baseline, and he shoots a contested shot, uh, and he misses. And meanwhile, I was standing at the elbow, wide open, calling for the ball. And eventually, the game ends in a tie, which, shame on them for allowing a game to end in a tie, first of all. Um, and I suppose it technically means we still finished our season undefeated, but you know that it, it doesn't count. 
And after the game, I was, I was really upset with my brother. I was mad. I'd concluded immediately after he took the shot that he had lost us the game by shooting on our final possession rather than passing to me. Because clearly I was going to make the shot. We all know. My brother had not only cost us the game with his boneheaded mistake, but he'd sullied our perfect season. Inexcusable. As I've now had a little over 15 years or so to think about this, uh, I recognize the truth. While my brother did miss that shot on our final possession, and an argument can be made that maybe he should have passed instead, that really isn't anything to hold over his head because his sin was small and possibly not really a sin at all, to be frank. But I was so caught up in his mistake and I, that I blamed him for that I was unable to see the real culprit in all of this, which is me. If I had stepped up and contested that shot, Jordan probably misses this kid. And even if we don't get the rebound, our defense has a chance to set up and we probably win the game. I made the wrong decision. If I had done my job, my brother never gets forced into making that choice on offense. I was criticizing my brother for a fleck of sawdust that I thought was in his eye, if it was there at all. And I had the log in my own eye. A log that I couldn't see because I was so distracted by the speck I saw in my brother's eye. Or at least the log I was willing to and able to overlook in order to feel better about myself. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Straightforward. Brothers and sisters, we, we all have stuff in our, eyes, in our eyes. Maybe some of us have a bit more than others. Maybe some of us are struggling more obviously than others. But we all have stuff. And if we're being honest, we, we know that it looks more like a log than just a speck. And if you truly believe that you're better than most and you can see clearly enough to pick the speck from your brother's eye, I invite you to try something that my father-in-law tried. I was talking with my father-in-law a year ago or so, and I don't remember how the conversation got there, but he told me about a prayer he prayed that really impacted him. He said he was feeling a bit distant from God, so he prayed that God would reveal to him all of the sin in his life. And let me tell you what, this isn't a prayer for the, for the faint of heart because God just might show you, and it can be crushing, especially if you thought your eyes were pretty clear. But here's the hope in all this. Jesus didn't die so that we could recognize all the sin in our own lives and in others' lives. That's not what Jesus died for. That's not why he died for us. No, he died for us so that we could be in relationship with the Father, and so that we could love the Father's children as he first loved us. That means withholding judgment and encouraging one another, being merciful, not condemning, and forgiving, even when our neighbor may not seem to deserve it. And we're promised here in verse 38 as well that when we give these things to others, it will also be given to us. After all, God has done all these things for us and continues to do all these things for us, even though we certainly don't deserve it. And he does so freely and willingly. We are promised that his forgiveness and blessing will be given to us in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over so that it ends up in our lap, just as those fries from five guys ended up in my lap a time or two. 
Thanks be to God for his generous love and mercy. And may we respond by reflecting that love to those around us through forgiveness, mercy, but never judgmentally. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Thank you for your word to us this morning and for the love and forgiveness you so freely give us. May you encourage us to reflect that love to others as you have taught us in our passage this morning, that we may offer forgiveness to those who have wronged us and mercy to those who need it. May we also remain humble in doing so, making sure not to judge those who struggle outwardly and remembering that you are our guide and that we are only able to love because you have shown us how. Be present in the remainder of our service this morning as we sing glory to you in praise. Amen.